Hi. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. Today we have another special interview podcast planned for you with journalist John Schwartz. I've been following John's work for a long time. Before he was hired at The Intercept, John used to write on an excellent blog called Tiny Revolution. He was continuously dropping these obscure references to neocons. So I've decided to bring on John today to talk about the illustrious and horrific career of neoconservative policy wonk and former and now current member of the U.S. government, Elliot Abrams. John wrote a couple excellent pieces about Elliot Abrams, one right after the appointment of him inside Trump's State Department, and another article about his confrontation with Representative Ilhan Omar. Before joining First Look, John worked for Michael Moore's Dog Eat Dog Films. It was researcher-producer for Moore's Capitalism, A Love Story. He's contributed to a bunch of different publications, including The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Mother Jones and Slate, as well as NPR. In 2003, he collected on a $1,000 bet that Iraq would have no weapons of mass destruction. So without further ado, here's our interview with John Schwartz going through the history of Elliot Abrams. Elliot Abrams appeared to have gotten his start in politics in the mid-70s, working as a staffer for Senator Scoop Jackson um, and later for Daniel Moynihan, both hawkish Democratic senators, specifically Scoop Jackson, um, is someone who you hear come up over and over again from these influential neoconservative figures. Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz also served at one time as his aides. And Robert Kagan and Bill Kristol used to refer to a specific type of hawkish Democrat as a Scoop Jackson Democrat. And I know I'm talking a lot about Scoop Jackson right here <laughs> instead of Abrams, but what is it about Scoop Jackson and this orbit? Why would someone like you know Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl, and Elliot Abrams all be gravitating towards this this one senator sort of earlier in their careers? Yeah, well, that was really the birth of neoconservatism during the 70s as some kind of force in American politics. I mean, if, if you want, you can kind of trace the proto-neoconservatives back to the 1950s. But the issue in the 70s is that you had a group of people who were fairly liberal in terms of domestic politics, you could say, and then they were uh, dismayed by America's loss in Vietnam, and they're very anxious to reestablish uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, American hegemony, and make sure that the world didn't get any ideas. And so that's that's generally where the neoconservative influence or, or impulse came from. And they also, you know, they're known for a hawkish foreign policy where they claim that they are doing this because they care so deeply about human rights and democracy. And you know you can tell how much they care about human rights and democracy uh, by how much they care about what's actually going on in the United States. Like they never care about like voter suppression in America, which like if you love democracy, you would think, oh, I, like here's something you know a block away from where I live, I better get into that. No, it's not that. They always care about human rights in Iraq or human rights in Iran or human rights in El Salvador, as we'll find with Elliot Abrams. And I mean, and this is was not necessarily a new 
framing either. I mean, this was, would you describe this almost like a sort of a rebranding or a, a new um, generation of framing the debate this way in Washington, D.C.? Uh, as far as like making, you know, foreign policy about human rights? Well, you know, as I say, you can kind of trace it back to the end of World War II. Uh, like it wasn't really called neoconservatism then, but it was like the people who were who, who would talk about how America had lost to China, like somehow America had the power <laughs> to determine what was going to go on in China. And so the neoconservatives of, of those days would would weep bitter tears over the suffering of people in China and say, you know, we have to invade China to establish a non-communist government there because we care about the Chinese people so much. And, uh, you know, then they had opponents who were, you know, sort of the realist school who would say like George Kennan, you know, and say like, we, we can't really affect what's going on over there. And let's forget thinking about, you know, human rights and all this nonsense. And uh, the thing about that, that kind of impulse in American politics, then it was, it was a lot less powerful in the fifties like, than it got to be, you know, it became later on like a real force. Like we really did invade countries. Uh, you know, years later, but back then it was it was kind of minor and on the periphery, and it was it was during the seventies, I think, when it really came to the fore. And this was sort of a, a almost like a knee jerk or pendulum swinging the other way kind of effect, where these these early neocons, you know, were very dismayed by sort of I guess what they would call the Vietnam syndrome of people, you know, the 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 one of the biggest uh, examples of people being war weary as neocons like to say now and later abrams where did he go from this position to becoming assistant secretary of state under the reagan administration what was he doing in between being a staffer and serving on some of these um you know ser serving on some of these senator staff to going into that position you know i i'd have to go back and check i, I think he was just hired uh you know, away from some senator staff. He may have been working for, for Moynihan after working for Jackson. I'd have to check to be sure. But, you know, he, he got hired by the Reagan administration pretty much immediately when they came into office. So that's the beginning of 1981. And so first, uh, you know, he was assistant secretary of state for international organization affairs. And then uh, he was hired as, you know, he was, he was moved up, he was promoted to assistant secretary of state for human rights and humanitarian affairs. <laughs> and the funny part about that, uh, well, there are actually several uh, funny things about it. One that is funny in a genuine way and one that is funny in a horrifying way. Uh, the first funny part is that you know, the person who was going to be assistant secretary of state for human rights and humanitarian affairs uh, was a guy who uh, was nominated by the Reagan administration. And then, uh, sadly, his nomination ran aground. Like two of his brothers, his own family, notified the Senate that he genuinely, sincerely, and deeply believed that African Americans were, uh, quotes from newspaper articles at the time, which was like inferior, intellectually speaking. Jesus so his Christ. family wanted the Senate to know that about him again, uh, before he became the Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs. Wow. And uh, that became enough of a problem for the Reagan administration that they, they sadly had to discard him and bring in Abrams instead. Uh, so that is kind of genuinely funny. What's <laughs> funny in a horrifying way is that Elliot Abrams's first day on the job was December 12, 1981. Right at the moment that he began his job, 
the Salvadoran military was conducting a like two or three day massacre uh, at in a, a small village called El Mizote, which is uh, near the border with Honduras and the mountains. And it is, you know, one of the like great atrocities of the past 40 years of, of world history. Um, it's like the Milai massacre, except on a significantly larger scale. And they just, you know, they killed everybody. They, they killed men, women, and children. Uh, it was just like every horrifying military massacre of history. Uh, and you can find a lot of detail about that online. Like if you're curious, if you want to know how it really happened, there's a great article on the, uh, the website of, of Mark Danner, who's a fantastic reporter and wrote a very famous article about the Almazote massacre that appeared in the New Yorker. And uh, I would recommend anybody who's interested in, in L.A. Dad Brubens' history, like, go check that out. It's, it's, as I say, it's on his website, Mark Danner. Yeah, and you, I mean, you did a great job of walking the audience through the, what almost, I would describe as almost like a Clive Barker-esque um, uh, kind of description of the massacre that took place on the Chapo podcast. I mean, I think you said something like it, it was almost an unbelievable level of brutality that's that's hard for... I don't know if you use the word cartoonish, but it's almost hard to imagine that level of brutality. It's 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 almost impossible to picture. But one of the interesting things that came up in that discussion, I thought, was that one of the first things that Elliot Abrams was sort of tasked with doing, and I'm not exactly sure how this took place, so you'll have to explain to me. But when he started working under Reagan right after this massacre took place, is he was involved in smearing and discrediting um, American reporting and reporters who are basically covering this um, El Mazote massacre. And specifically, he helped destroy the career of one New York Times reporter. Can you explain what exactly happened here and who this New York Times reporter was? Yeah, he was a guy named Raymond Bonner. And he was, I think he was in Honduras when the massacre happened and he heard about it and he, you know, did what a, like a decent reporter would do, which was get there as soon as he possibly could. I think he got, it was like a couple of weeks after he, you know, he was finally able to make it to El Mazote and uh, a reporter from the Washington Post got there too. And, you know, there were just hundreds and hundreds of corpses, like, all over the village and killed in all kinds of various and gaudy ways. And he wrote an article that appeared, I think at the end of January of 1982 in the New York times and the Reagan administration, uh, you know, of course wanted to make sure that uh, this was knocked down as quickly as possible. I, I think that they engaged, you know, like, like the wall street journal uh, op-ed page, you know, which is super hardcore right wing. And so they had them attacking Raymond Bonner and, and the other reporting. Uh, they, they made all kinds of preposterous claims. I think uh, Abrams himself specifically said, look, well, you know, this village, El Mazote, you know, only had you know, 300 people or something like, how, how possibly could it be that a thousand people are purportedly dead now? Well, the reason was that, you know, people around El Mazote who lived in nearby villages were so terrified of the army that they'd all gathered there because they thought that they would be safe there. And so they came up with all kinds of ways of attacking it. Uh, I think that if I'm remembering correctly, you know, they, they went to uh, 
Raymond Bonner's editors and uh, you know criticized him and suggested, oh well, you know he's he's really uh, he's he's gone native and now he like is on the side of the Salvadoran guerrillas and uh, you know I mean you know he's he's probably super super liberal and so he's making all of this up and Bonner's career was really disrailed like they yanked him out of Central America and put him on you know some desk in New York that everybody knew was this huge demotion and his career like really stalled and. Uh, you know, it was only years later where everybody found out like, everything Bonner had written about was accurate. Everything that the Reagan administration was claiming was you know, preposterously wrong. And it's just an incredibly ugly story. It's a story not just of the deceitfulness of the Reagan administration, but also just, just the cowardice of the New York Times and, and other parts of the U.S. media who are willing to take the word of Abrams and his friends. Were there, were there any major differences between the way that Elliot Abrams operated at the State Department than people previous to him. Like, was there anything markedly different that you could say about his relationship with CIA operations or anything like that? Well, you know, yes and no. I mean, like, Abrams himself has said, you know, if you're going to condemn me, then you need to condemn all of America's foreign policy. And there is, just, you know, something to that. Uh, it also is dishonest in a fairly fundamental way because you know the United States is so powerful that small differences within the people at the tippy top of you know the U.S. government structure, like small differences in who those people are and what they think they're doing, create really the difference between life and death for people in all kinds of situations all over the world. So in a certain sense, you know they they always agree on the overall goals, but they execute them in different ways. And it's like, well, you know, would you rather be stabbed or like shot 30 times in the head? And most people will be like, oh, I guess I'll take the stabbing, <laughs> uh, you know, and that's, that's the difference between, you know, like the Car Carter administration perhaps, and then Elliot Abrams coming in. I mean, the people who were truly the most vicious and cruel across Central America were, were all celebrating when the Reagan administration was elected because they knew you know, that, that they were going to uh, let them off the leash and let them do what they wanted. And so, you know, it's, it's true to some degree. Uh, the history of U.S. foreign policy is ugly. Like, that's a bipartisan commitment to doing terrible things. But Abrams was significantly worse and if you are in any country that the u.s trains its eye upon uh you do not want abrams there in charge i wanted to talk about some other things he was involved in before the iran contra scandal should we talk about guatemala and nicaragua before we get there yeah so i mean the important thing to understand really about all of central america and and why the interaction of the united states and the elites in those countries is, is so horrendous and grotesque and cruel is that those societies have always been pretty dreadful, like some of the most awful places on earth because they were colonized by the Spanish who instituted like, like plantation agriculture, uh, kind of similar to American plantation agriculture, except the people that they were enslaving in Central America were generally indigenous, indigenous rather than African. Mm -hmm. uh, but 
there never was a civil war ending slavery and really slavery for all intents and purposes uh, continued in Central America, like all through the 20th century. And the people who run these countries, generally it's, you know, it's really a small number of families in each of them. And these, these are not very big places. I think El Salvador is like the size of New Jersey, maybe. Uh, it's a small number of families in my personal experience and also just reading about things, they honestly do not see the other people there, especially the people who are wholly indigenous, like is actually human. I mean, they, they see them as be subverted. They see them as, you know, like if, if you have a cow, you know, and the cow is misbehaving, you don't try to negotiate with the cow, you know, you are planning to kill it anyway. So that's what you do. And so that's true in El Salvador. Yeah, you can tell that from the El Mazote massacre, many, many, many other massacres through Salvadorans, his, the Salvadoran history. Uh, it's true in Guatemala. Uh, the U.S. famously overthrew an attempt to, you know, have some kind of decent democratic New Deal kind of government in Guatemala uh, in 1954, and from that point onward, Guatemala was governed by just this revolving cast of. Uh, people who are, for all intents and purposes, like like serial killers, which sounds like a crazy exaggeration, but it really isn't. Like, there's a famous forensic anthropologist who, you know, decades later came to help with the, uh, you know, examining the mass graves in Guatemala, and he said, you know, it's it's too bad that Jeffrey Dahmer never came to Guatemala because he would have ended up a general. Wow. And uh, between 1960 and 1996, uh, people call the civil war in Guatemala. Uh, it wasn't a civil war. You know, it was just the government attacking the people of Guatemala. Uh, there was a UN commission later that found the, you know, the government was responsible for 93% of the human rights violations during this period. Uh, 200,000 Guatemalans were killed. Again, Guatemala is bigger than El Salvador, still a small country. That's the equivalent of like you know eight million people being killed in a war against Americans by the American government, and uh, that, that's where Elliot Abrams comes in. Like like the the war was especially brutal at the beginning of the eighties, and the guy who was running Guatemala then was named Efrain Rios Mont, and uh, people in Congress were angry about what had been going on in Guatemala, they had instituted an arms embargo so that the U.S. You know, couldn't be sending them arms. Uh, what the Reagan administration did, and, and I believe the Carter administration to some degree too, was they're like, well, okay, you know, we can't send them arms from America, but we'll organize it so that Taiwan and Israel can send the Guatemalan government arms. Oh because as we know, you know, they can't stop killing Guatemalans. That has to go on. Uh, but anyway, uh, so this was Abrams, previous to the Iran-Contra affair. That this is another way to get around using a loophole to to send arms to Guatemala. Is what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Uh, you know, I mean, it was like at that time. Like, I think I think the Contras were still being funded by Congress, so they didn't have to worry about Got any it. loopholes and going around it. It was only later, and so, uh, but but the Reagan administration wanted to lift the congressional embargo. And you can actually go and watch Abrams say, say, be talking about this on YouTube. Like, <laughs> it's there online. Uh, he went on a new show, and this is what he said. You know, 
if we take the attitude, don't come to us until you're perfect, you know, I mean, we're going to walk away from this problem until Guatemala has a, a perfect human rights record. You know, then we're going to be leaving in the lurch the people who are really trying to make progress. And, you know, who is trying to make progress? Well, according to Abrams, it was Rios Mont. Uh, he said, uh, there, you know, there's been this tremendous change, especially in the attitude of the government toward the Indian population. Okay, so that's Elliot Abrams in the early 1980s talking about Rios Mont. Uh, uh, decades later, Rios Mont was convicted by Guatemalan courts of conducting literal genocide. Now, this is the guy that Elliot Abrams was praising to the skies for his sensitivity to the well-being of Guatemalans. So Rios Mont was was he just in Guatemala this this whole time until he was convicted, or was he did he like flee with U.S. protection, or how did that what what ended up happening with him? You know, I believe he was there the entire time. I'm not 100% sure about that, but I think he was. You know, sometimes people like this get like Harvard fellowships and so they kind of, <laughs> you know, visit Cambridge for a year. Like that sounds like a joke, but it's really not. I mean, there are examples of totally. guys like this who, who do show up at, you know, Harvard and, you know, spend a year hanging out with people from the Kennedy School of Government. Um, but as far as I know, I think he stayed. And I mean, it really says something about the, the courage of people in Guatemala when you look at the absolute refusal in America to ever hold any powerful people accountable for anything. And in Guatemala, I mean, power is a lot closer to the surface. It's a lot more frightening on a day-to-day -day level. And yet they were able to do this. They were able to you know, convict Rios Mont of this. And eventually it was, it was overturned by the highest civilian court, I think, and Rios Mont died before they could finish with the appeal. But nevertheless, I mean, it's really, it's extremely impressive that they pulled this off. And it is extraordinary. I mean, I just, it's really hard to imagine. Like, go, if you read this article that I wrote uh, at The Intercept, you know, I think that there's a link there to Elliot Abrams talking on TV and just watch him and, and imagine that you know, he was getting these intelligence reports every day. You know, if you're in that position, that's what you get. And you know, he must have just been hearing about massacre after massacre after massacre. And he was talking about the the improving human rights record there. Yeah, it's a pretty disturbing clip. Everybody, go check out that article on the Intercept right now if you haven't read it already. But I guess we should move on to Nicaragua now, which seems to be it takes up most of the space in terms of what Elliot Abrams was involved in during the Reagan administration. And one of the things that I found interesting, and this is just a total side note, is that Abrams was actually, what was he, only 30, 32 or 33 during this time period? Yeah, he was a young guy. I mean, he, I think he just turned 71 maybe. So he may have been, uh, you know, getting up to his, his mid-30s by that point. Okay. Um, but uh, he had a lot of energy and, and gumption. Yeah, and and also uh, what I found interesting is Robert Kagan apparently was uh, his first role in like un in the Reagan administration after he moved on from working as senator staffers as well was working under Abrams when he was only something like twenty five years old helping him run um, this anti Sandinista propaganda. So it just strikes me as odd that how young these people were. I mean, not just Abrams but also Kagan, you know, doing this kind of stuff at this time period. And I know you've also written a lot about Robert Kagan. You've actually on Tiny Revolution, you know, brought out these obscure 
tasty morsels of uh, of sort of neocon trivia that have really been you know helped me with my own work. Let's talk about the the whole operation. I mean, what was Abrams doing when he was working for the State Department in Nicaragua? And I guess he used that as a jumping off point to get into Iran-Contra. Right. Well, the important thing to understand about the Reagan administration's perspective, you know, at this time, the early 80s, is that you know, in Nicaragua, right next door to El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras, there had been a successful socialist revolution by the Sandinistas in 1979. And this terrified them because they realized that you know, just the social systems of all of these countries was completely rotten and people were desperate for change, you know, like just if there's a successful slave rebellion, well, you know, the slaves next door are going to be like, hey, we don't enjoy being slaves either. They were able to do something about it. Maybe we can too. And so this really had to be nipped in its bud and the Reagan administration, you know, went all out to try to do that. And, you know, the, the most important thing really from their perspective was to squelch what was happening in Nicaragua. What they wanted to do was reinstitute, you know, something like the dictatorship that existed before and had faithfully carried out America's commands. And so that's what they were trying to do with the Contras. But the Contras were also extremely brutal. Uh, they did carried out all kinds of atrocities uh, against regular Nicaraguans. And so just as it happened with Guatemala, Congress got angry about this and tried to cut off money to them. And for Elliot Abrams, who was one of the architects you know, of, of all the policy across Central America and the rest of the Reagan administration, you know, this was terrible. And they had to figure out a way to keep the Contras going so that they could continue uh, trying to reinstitute the kind of government that Nicaragua had had before and make sure that you know all the people who thought that they could change their the the nightmarish world that they live in you know were taught a lesson and so uh that's when iran contra happened because they were like you know iran is having this war with iraq uh, their military is mostly american that means they're going to be desperate for military arms and so we can sell stuff to iran and then take the money from those sales and fund the Contras with it. Uh, this was, uh, people may know Oliver North, who's now uh, like in a top position at the National Rifle Association, was yeah. on the National Security Council, I think, and this one of the main guys doing that. So uh, they tried to get money that way, but another thing that they did was just kind of go around to right-wing allies around the planet and just be like, hey, we need money for our allies, the Contras. Can you help us out? And what, one of my favorite parts of this uh, grim story, one of the very few things that is not just tremendously awful and is actually kind of wonderful, is that Abrams himself you know, arranged for the Sultan of Brunei to provide $10 million for the Contras, right? <laughs> so one of the richest people on earth, uh, he's like, oh, okay, sure, why not? Anything for a friend. Uh, Abrams goes to London to set this deal up under the code name Kimmelworth and sets the deal. And unfortunately, uh, when he provided the Sultan of Brunei's employees with the rights, you know, Swiss bank account number where they should send the money, uh, 
I think they transposed two digits. <laughs> okay. And so the $10 million <laughs> instead went to one lucky random recipient. What? Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, it, it went to uh, some, I think it was like some businessman who like immediately took it out of, <laughs> took it out. <laughs> well, that's such a weird story. What, that I mean, was there any accusations that Elliot Abrams somehow stole that money or that it was never actually sent? I mean, that's such a well, odd it, it story. Well, it was a very anxious experience for all of them, I think. And, you know, I've always wondered like what, like who makes the call to the Sultan of Brunei? You believe like, hey, the money hasn't arrived. And then the Sultan of Brunei was like, well, I sent it to, to this Swiss bank account number. And then you're like, <laughs> say that Swiss bank account number again. That is just so uh, surreal. I, I mean, it, it's to me, it, I, I guess in my, in my imagination, I would imagine Elliot Abrams going over there and bringing back like a, you know, suitcase full of uh, cash or something. Wow. What a weird story. Yeah, no, no, they they just tried to wire it through the normal you know, Swiss system and screwed up very, very badly. And, uh, you know, it would be like, it's kind of amazing, like like Life on Earth really is like a Joel and Ethan Cohen movie where you have this kind of like combination of ultra violence and total <laughs> buffoonish incompetence. Yeah, no, it really is. I mean, they would make they would make a great movie about about neocons if they if they did one. Describe to me how did Elliot Abrams and the other cons uh, conspirators in Iran Contra actually get caught? What was the event or what was the incident that actually put them in the crosshairs of this inquiry and and exposed them? You know, uh, it was not the U.S. media. <laughs> what happened? Shocker. Was, yeah, <laughs> uh, I believe that one of the main problems for them was that one of the Contra resupply planes crashed in Nicaragua, and it was captured by the Nicaraguan government, and it was this big media event. And then a paper in Lebanon had picked up the story, and they you know exposed this, and then finally that kind of kicked the door open for the media and the rest of the world, and people began investigating it. And it was obviously such like the, it was such a bizarre set of shenanigans by the Reagan administration, like this weird extra constitutional attempt to to do what Congress had told them not to do. And of course, you know, the power of the purse is purportedly like, like the main power that Congress has. You know, this this was potentially an impeachable offense by Reagan. And so there was this, you know, finally this big congressional investigation, which is how we know about Abrams and his code name. Wow, that's so fascinating. So so after this happens, um, there's an inquiry set up by Congress. And is that when Elliot Abrams actually technically committed his crimes, the lying to Congress, to two counts of or withholding information to Congress, I think, was it was technically. Yeah, he, he uh, you know, was concerned, I think, for a period of time that he was going to be prosecuted for more serious crimes. Finally, uh, he he struck a deal where he, he pled guilty to withholding information from Congress on two counts. One involved his knowledge about the Sultan of Brunei, which I were <laughs> if I were him, I also had not would not have wanted to tell the truth about. Uh, and the other one was about uh, the plane that had crashed. And so, you know, he knew what was going on in both cases. Uh, Congress asked him about it, and he did not, 
give the full truth, let us say. And he was sentenced, I think, to like one teeny tiny fine and a hundred hours of community service. And uh, this did he actually have to do him. that, even though he was later pardoned? Did he did he have to pay the fine and do the community service? It, you know, I, I've been trying to find that. <laughs> out. I, you know, it, it, it took a while. Um, you know, it took it took so long. I think he he withheld information in 1986, maybe, and the plea deal happened in 1991, and then he was pardoned at the end of 1992. So, given how long it takes to actually force these people to do anything, you know, I he may have completely escaped whatever it was, like you know, like doing some gardening in a public library or whatever. <laughs> uh, I I don't know that for a fact, but he you know very soon after he pleaded guilty. He was pardoned by uh, President George H.W. Bush, and this was on Bush's way out the door, like after he had lost to Clinton in the 1992 election. Uh, but and he didn't Abrams serve in his administration, right? He wasn't officially. Elliot Abrams did not serve in the George H.W. Bush administration. That was right. Like the gears were turning in the Iran Contra investigation to the degree that that he was kind of you know a bit radioactive and he he couldn't really participate in it. Uh, but he found the fact that, that he got, you know, this, this terrible sentence of a hundred hours of community service to be you know, <laughs> perhaps the greatest injustice in world history. And he, he wrote a book where he described his interior monologue about the prosecutors, which was quote, you miserable, filthy bastards, you bloodsuckers. Uh, so <laughs> is this his book titled yeah. undue process? From the 90s yeah. uh-huh. i just wanted to read a, the uh the inner fold blurb of this book i actually just bought it used copy of it because i found it so amusing quote a gripping personal account of a man caught in one of the most disturbing developments in recent american politics the criminalization of political differences and pursued for five years by a new legal process bent on making criminals out of public servants what's your comment on that blurb <laughs> well, the, what happened to Elliot Abrams is pretty much like Les Miserables, and uh, it's it Jean Valjean, right, <laughs> who is trying to steal the bread for his family, and uh, it's that's pretty much what happened to Elliot Abrams, and uh, he was he was pursued mercilessly by <laughs> the cruel prosecutors for a, a crime that any humane human being would would have uh, carried out themselves. Um, yeah, no, it is incredible, and I, I envy you the experience of of reading that book. I, I paged through it in a bookstore once, and it is something else. Yeah, and it's interesting too. Who who has quotes on the back um, praising the book? It's Alan Dershowitz, uh, Henry Kissinger, and and Richard Nixon, and two yeah, well, other that, people. That's, I don't that's recognize. A, that's a wholesome uh, triple threat right there. Yeah, it's just the balls on the guy to write a book like that. I mean, it's it's impressive. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, here's the thing that that actually is true about Republicans and Democrats. And when Republicans get caught, like, generally speaking, the Democrats have been doing like things that are, let's say, like eighty-two percent as horrible as what the Republicans were doing. <laughs> and so, they, they do kind of get genuinely mad. Like, it was something that Republicans would say during the Obama administration, which is like, you, you guys get so angry at us. Because we would capture people and then take them to Guantanamo or wherever to be tortured. Well, the Obama administration, when they were dealing with 
similar kinds of people, they would just drone them. Yeah. You know, they, they just, you know, instantly sentenced them to death. And so you can see why the Republicans would get a little bit mad under those circumstances. You know, the way U.S. foreign policy works is kind of like, like murder on the Orient Express, if people remember that. Like, it, the thing about that story is that every single person, every suspect is guilty to some degree. Like, you know, some have stabbed the person, the victim, more than once. Some have stabbed them more deeply, but everyone participated. And so it's very difficult to, for, for anyone in the system to have clean hands to prosecute the, the worst ones because, you know, everybody is guilty to some degree. And then that, I think that's what Elliot Abrams and, and his friends, you know, like Richard Nixon, it is kind of odd, of course, where like Elliot Abrams was like, you know, who, who can I get to praise my book who will really make people think that I was innocent? He was like, I know Richard Nixon. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's quite strange. I mean, I I don't you know I was too young to know really what the climate was like back then, but it does seem like a strange choice even for the time um, to have you know Nixon put his uh, put a, a poll quote on the back of his book. Let's move beyond the well. I guess it's still in the orbit of the Iran Contra scandal, but you know people people conflate you know the CIA drug trafficking stuff. Um, with Iran-Contra, even though it's peripherally sort of related, there were different hearings about about the drug trafficking specifically. But one interesting thing that you've found and that other people have reported on is that there was a general in Honduras named Jose Bueso Rosa. who was a convicted drug trafficker from Honduras. He had a close relationship with the proxy war runners back in D.C. Um, he was running a unit called Battalion 316 that was trained by the CIA, uh, which was later determined to have killed and captured um, and tortured around 200 suspected leftists. But his, his drug trafficking was so brazen and frequent that apparently a presidential pardon was out of the question, but players in the Iran-Contra affair, all, Oliver North and Abrams, uh, they figured out a way to essentially give him a slap on the wrist. Can you go into a little bit what happened there and and how what they did to get this guy a lighter sentence? Okay, so this guy uh, Boizo did these things that like like sound like they must be made up, but they were not. Uh, he had been a drug smuggler, uh, doing all kinds of deals, but what he got in particular trouble for was that. He wanted to do a deal for $10 million and take that money and use it in 1984 to assassinate the president of Honduras. Holy shit. <laughs> and so he gets caught by that, and he is sentenced to a five-year prison term. And this is very frightening. In Honduras? Because uh, in the United States, uh, he, he served his uh, prison term in Tallahassee uh, on, at a minimum security prison on an air force base which is like like one of the club feds which has cabins and volleyball courts of course and nonetheless this made oliver north and abrams and all the people who are working on the contras uh, quite nervous because you know he had helped he'd done all kinds of things to help them with the contras he knew all kinds of things that could make them look extremely bad and so they did a ton to try to get him leniency and 
uh, you know, they went and they talked to all kinds of people like, oh, well, you know, he, like he's really not that bad. He, he probably didn't really have anything to do with the assassination plot. He was just on the periphery. And so they actually wrote, Oliver North had like an email that was discovered in the Iran-Contra uh, investigation, like actually said, like, let's cabal together. <laughs> like, like literally wrote, like, let's conspire together uh, to get him leniency. And, uh, you know, eventually, uh, you know, he, he got out of jail and it was just, just amazing. I mean, he was this like hardcore criminal and he was, you know, he had this in at the very top of the American government. It's just, it's an amazing story. If people are in doubt of the CIA's involvement in drug trafficking, they should really go back and look at some of this some of this stuff involving Elliot Abrams and, and Oliver North. Um it's quite quite revealing. Yeah, I, I recently you know wrote an article about Oliver North when he joined the NRA because I mean it's unbelievably damning. Like if you look at the declassified documents, uh like and these are the ones that like escaped the shredder that they weren't able to get rid of. It really is incredible. I mean, he, he's just like writing down on, like in, in his notes, like, you know, $10 million was from drugs. And so <laughs> they, they knew exactly what was going on and they just didn't care. Like this was a much higher priority, what they were doing with the Contras. And it's just so, so bizarre that he's the head of the NRA now, because back in that, during that time period, the NRA was sort of promoting, you know, this sort of cultural image of like a dirty, hairy kind of a uh, vigilante citizen fighting against like crackheads and, you know, people who are trying to kill you on the streets. That was kind of the, the mentality back then. So it's very odd that he was so involved in, you know, these different uh, CIA drug trafficking activities. And now he's the head of the NRA. I mean, I, it's, it's incredible actually. You know, the, the war on drugs is not 100% of the up and up. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean it, it it's and and just as a tidbit, one one of the interesting things I found came across recently in an old copy of uh, the Weekly Standard magazine um was Elliot Abrams wrote was writing articles in that magazine around the same time Tucker Carlson um of now infamous, you know, anti-neocon fame was writing an article smearing Gary Webb. So I just found that kind of an interesting dink. You know, Tucker Carlson is writing articles smearing a guy who tried to expose CIA drug trafficking when Elliot Abrams was also working there. You know, I, I didn't know that uh, Tucker Carlson had played that role. He's just a very... Uh, <laughs> For a guy who likes to talk about the deep state all the time, it's, an, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, the fact is that the, like, the U.S. foreign policy establishment is just not that big, and the U.S. like media lead is not that big, even though we're an enormous country. The number of people who are doing these things is, is fairly small, and, and if you look back, you will always see them crossing paths and hatching various plots together. Exactly. Um, and that's what strikes me over and over again, is just how small this group of people is, and you know how they basically they keep seemingly climbing the ladder throughout DC, failing upward as some people call it, you know, especially like with someone like Bill Crystal. Um, I, I, I like to think of it more as succeeding downward. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. I, I, I wanted to talk about Panama, but I feel like we, we should probably move on to some other things. Cause I we're already almost at an hour here. Um, yeah, I mean, the difficulty about Elliot Abrams and all of this history is that 
we really could spend until like early 2020 exactly like, and still not excavate all of it so you're right i mean uh, there's so much more to say what happened with abrams is that you know he pleads guilty everybody thinks his career is over uh but uh as the uh former chairman of the joint chiefs of staff said about him uh, at the time uh, you know he thought that people were underestimating Abrams, uh, who was this guy who's named uh, William J. Crow Jr. And he had, he'd tangled with Abrams and taken his measure and realized uh, what an effective adversary he was. And th this is a quote from the former Joint Chiefs of Staff about Abrams. This snake's hard to kill. <laughs> wow. So uh, the naive uh, Washington insiders didn't think he would ever be in a presidential administration again. But George W. Bush is elected in 2000, and uh, Elliot Abrams is back. He's back in business, and he's appointed to the National Security Council. Uh, he gets more titles involving democracy and human rights, and he gets to work again. And uh, in 2002, there's a coup in Venezuela. Uh, some of the documents have been declassified, and I'm actually uh, I'm looking at some of them now, and it's very suggestive about U.S. involvement. Uh, what we do know about reporting at the time was that people said that Elliot Abrams was the one who was in contact with uh, the coup plotters and gave them the nod, like, go do it, go overthrow Hugo Chavez. And so he was overthrown uh, briefly, but he was so popular in Venezuela and had so much support in the military that he was able to get back into power and squelch the coup within a couple of days. Uh, but so Elliot Abrams has you know, had his fingers in the... Uh, venezuelan coup pie for some time like like he's not a neophyte there uh he also was involved in killing a possible peace deal with iran this this happened in 2003 soon after the u.s invaded iraq uh the funny thing about that is that iran faxed this proposal and it, it should have gotten to his desk and from there, it should have gone to the desk of Condoleezza Rice, who was the national security advisor at the time. Uh, it never made it to her desk, and his spokesman, uh, Abrams' spokesman, replied that he had no memory of any such facts. And you know, the funny thing about Abrams is that continually throughout, throughout his career, he, he's turned out to be uh, very forgetful. Like He has a <laughs> terrible memory, uh, like, like so many people, who get to the very top level of politics. He has a terrible memory uh, for anything political. Quickly about, about his sort of loyalty in the Bush administration. I mean, after the movie Vice came out, which you know may or may not have some questionable framing in it, I'm just curious, would you describe Elliot Abrams more in the orbit of sort of the George W. Bush loyalist or sort of like the Dick Cheney loyalist? I would guess the, more the Dick Cheney side of the equation. You know, that's an interesting question. I, I think you would have to say so, but I have such respect for him as an operator. <laughs> I would guess that he probably, you know, was able to maintain relations with both sides. And he did, you know, Cheney kind of fell out of favor towards the end of, of uh, Bush's second term or during the second term. And Abrams, you know, was still in there. In, you know, he was still swinging. And in 2006, uh, you know, there had been an election that, the Bush administration had pushed for uh, for Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, yes, because the Bush administration wanted to legitimate 
the rule of Fatah. Uh, and to everybody's surprise, you know, really because the, sort of the people in power at the time were so corrupt, not because people loved Hamas, uh, Hamas won. And Abrams, Condoleezza Rice, some other people in the Bush administration uh, looked at that and were like, well, that uh, demonstrates that the Palestinians have voted incorrectly. And uh, because we love democracy so much, because we've all been talking about it all our lives, about helping people overseas, we're going to help them have the correct government. So it was you know, kind of like the Contras again, like we were going to build up this militia, Palestinian militia, and have them go into Gaza and overthrow the Hamas government. And Hamas uh, you know, realized that this was happening and actually moved first and, and was able to stop the coup. And, you know, it was super violent and terrible on all sides. But again, you know, we were, we were in there supporting the torture and murder. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even, that's, that was completely new to me. Um, when I read that in your article, I didn't, I wasn't aware that the Bush administration was, um, was involved at that level um in, in in Palestine. So that's really interesting. I mean there was definitely I mean speaking of the the Kagan family, um they went out on a limb. Uh Don and Fred Kagan went on a radio show and and right after 9/11 said that we should actually send ground forces, US ground forces into Palestine to to remove the Arafat regime. So I guess that shouldn't be that much of a surprise that we were trying to manipulate the election results that way. Where do we go from here with Abrams? I mean, he you know, he was involved in these different attempts to basically do coups in, in Venezuela um, and in Palestinian territories uh, under the George W. Bush administration. Before that, um, in the 90s, it seemed like his main thing was basically just being a policy wonk, a D.C. think tanker. He actually says in his book that he was really angry about the uh, you know these these felony charges um, during the Iran Contra hearing because it took him away from his position at, as a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, and of course he became one of the founding uh, signatories of the PNAC's um, statement of principles. He was one of the seventeen PNAC members or signatories to go into the George W. Bush administration. But you know, as you said, people thought that this guy would go away, that his reputation had been destroyed things that he was associated with. For me personally, I don't even remember him being in the George W. Bush administration. So I was even surprised by that. I just thought that he had been sort of in the think tank scene this entire time. Turns out he became, he sort of went along with most of the neoconservatives in DC and became what I guess would now be described as a never Trumper. Someone who uh, actually wrote uh, editorials, I think in one case, uh, his editorial was called, he wrote an op-ed in the Weekly Standard in 2016 titled, When You Can't Stand Your Candidate, uh, referring to Donald Trump. And we know that early on in the Trump presidency, it was reported that the Secretary of State at that time, Rex Tillerson, uh, was going to pick Elliot Abrams to be Deputy Secretary of State, but apparently what what this what was being reported at the time is that Trump shot that down because he had found out about Elliot Abrams, you know, writing these these negative pieces about Trump after he'd gone the nomination. But fast forward to two years later, 
And now Abrams just sort of gets in, oddly, right after Trump says he's going to end all the wars. So I know that it's, you know, a lot of this might be speculation since we don't really know exactly why he was appointed. But I just wanted you to speak on wh- why you think Trump picked him. And also, what was this thing about, Re- like, why would Rex Tillerson be interested in hiring Elliot Abrams? And now that Rex Tillerson has gone, you know, why is he, why is he still getting in? Yeah, well, all these people know each other. Uh, I think that probably the reason that it was possible for Elliot Abrams to get into the Trump administration was John Bolton. You know, I mean, he's he's a very similar character. And just like Elliot Abrams, John Bolton, you know, would have a hard time being confirmed by Congress to a position. And so that's why John Bolton is the national security advisor and not, you know, secretary of state or something like that. Yeah. Um, it does have to be speculation, but I think that, you know, in these circles, again, it's a very small number of people. They all know each other. Uh, they're, if they're ideological allies, they're always pushing each other, other forward. And John Bolton probably said, you know, you should, you should go on Hannity, like, you know, like called Abrams was like, well, you should go on Hannity and like get a haircut. Like Trump hates, he saw you on TV and hated your haircut. So get a new haircut and like wear a really bright tie because he, he loves these ties and talk about how uh, you know obama was unbelievably stupid with iran and we probably need to bomb them and talk about how impressed you are by donald trump and he'll be watching tonight and he'll see you and be like we we need that man in my administration so i i suspect it was probably as simple as that yeah i mean you're probably right sadly disturbingly um and it, I guess what strikes me is, I mean, Trump, you know, is notorious, notoriously plays these loyalty games that he would actually hire someone um, who wrote such scathing stuff about him uh, leading into the election. And I, But I guess another question that comes up for me is why, you know, even if it was Bolton's influence to get Elliot Abrams in, why Abrams? And why not some of these other neocons? Um, what is it specifically about Abrams that you think maybe even lines up with, you know, I hate to say Trump has an ideology, but lines up with sort of whatever Trump's operating ideology is about wanting to overthrow the government in Venezuela right now? Yeah, well, I mean, if you wanted to do what Trump apparently does want, you know, McCabe said in his book, he was just talking about it on television recently, that Trump was like, why aren't we having a war with Venezuela? I mean, they're the ones with all the oil. So, like Trump, like personally, was already interested in overthrowing the government. If you want to overthrow a government, who are you going to get? Like, there are not that many people. Elliot Abrams has, like, you know, look at his resume. Like, that's the guy you want to get. If I wanted to overthrow a government, I would hire him. And uh, overthrowing a government in South America, specifically, as well. Yeah, right. Like, he, you know, he probably already has decent Spanish. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting because one of the things that, you brought up that I mean I I found intriguing is that this has sort of gone back to maybe even reverted to like an earlier iteration of U.S. imperialism or imperialistic notions of this sort of idea of this is our hemisphere. Why are we meddling in countries like Syria? That's thousands of miles away. I, there's been sort of a realignment, or it seems like, or maybe it's just on the surface. I mean, I don't I don't know if they really believe this, but. 
trying to make the rationale that this is our backyard, that Venezuela is part of our hemisphere, therefore it's actually sort of valid um, compared to these you know, wars thousands of miles away. And, and can you just describe that a little bit? Like, what is it, what is the difference between this and sort of the ways of, the way, I guess, foreign policy is traditionally um, framed by these, you know, policymaking people in the government? Yeah, honestly, at this point, I think it's just a losing game to try to figure out what is going on inside the mind of Donald Trump. Like, his <laughs> brain is, at this point, clearly, like, the size and shape of a walnut. And like, who the hell knows what he thinks? Like, like, who knows whether he like knows how many countries there are in South America? You know, we can be certain he doesn't. Like, does he know that Ecuador is like in this hemisphere? Probably not. Uh, you know, all he knows is what he saw on television in the last thirty seconds. And you know, we could try to fit some kind of ideology onto his decisions and i i just don't think that we can it's just he's a man with a you know he's an old man with a rapidly shrinking brain and he's going to do whatever you know the last person he talked to told him to do but then that raises the question of who was the person who told him to sort of frame things in this by talking about hemispheres because i i mean i'm I, am i wrong that he that trump actually used that framing during his sort of miami Venezuela regime change rally that happened last week? You know, I'd, I'd have to go back and look, but you know, all of this stuff sounds very much like John Bolton. So I, yeah. I would assume that it's coming from him. And all of the forces that were able to contend with John Bolton have been pushed out, right? There's, there's no Tillerson. Uh, Mattis is gone from the Defense Department. They're not replacing him, apparently. You know, there's reporting saying that they're not replacing him because, like, they they don't want a strong Secretary of Defense who can fight with Bolton. I guess the final thing I wanted to ask you about is now that Elliot Abrams and John Bolton, I mean, honestly, two of the worst, most monstrous uh, neoconservatives, and some people will say that John Bolton is not a neoconservative, and there's you know maybe some ar- valid argument to be made there, but... Yeah, yeah, Bolton is not really a neoconservative, and it just goes to show how bogus the neoconservative ideology is that Abrams is willing to work with him. Like, like Bolton is just uh, like a standard issue imperialist from like 1878, right? You know, if it were up to him, we would just be like sailing down to South American steamships. So, uh, you know, Bolton is not a neoconservative, but he, he's happy to work with people who are because uh, everything about neoconservatism is bogus except for the uh, you know, crushing governments elsewhere. Just an opinion question, but how dangerous of a position do you feel that we're in now with someone like John Bolton and Elliot Abrams um, whispering in, in Trump's ear? It's extremely dangerous. It is no joke. Uh, it's not just in Venezuela with Iran. Who the hell knows what's going to happen with North Korea? Uh, I have gone back and forth on this, but I, I still think that the chances that you know human civilization will survive the Trump presidency are maybe two and three. So, uh, you know, that's kind of optimistic. Even. That's that's not that's pretty. Optimistic. Yeah, the, the only reason I I feel so uh, so sunny about it is that Trump himself is so incredibly lazy. Like if he had more energy, 
then we probably would be doomed. I think we're going to make it, but it's it's going to be a close call. And I guess the final thing I'll ask you about this is, do you think on some level this show, I hate to call an attempted military coup a show, um, that Trump is doing in Venezuela could be a test run or a uh, testing the waters for a future regime change plans in Iran. I'm sure that from the perspective of Bolton, that that's what's going on. You know, with Iraq, their plan was, okay, well, we're going to crush our enemies and everyone is going to be so terrified by our might that it's going to be able, you know, it's going to be possible to cow everybody else. And so that is the way they think, like, okay, we're going to go and overthrow the government of Venezuela, and then that's going to give us momentum for Iran. That's totally possible. I mean, that that's really in character for Bolton and Abrams. Yeah, a lot of stuff to worry about, I would say. Everybody should be paying very close attention to what both of these men are doing. Uh, but thanks so much for talking to me today, John. Where can people read your work? Are there any recent podcast appearances you wanted to mention? Anything like that? Yeah, well, I if you want to hear more about Elliot Abrams, uh, please find me on Twitter at Schwartz, and that's Schwartz without a T, just S-C-H-W-A-R-Z. Uh, you will find all the Elliot Abrams content your your heart could ever desire. Uh, and just in generally, you know, I'm at theintercept.com. All right. And uh, are you still publishing on your own blog, Tiny Revolution, or is that defunct? In, in, in theory, yes. Uh, three times a year, perhaps. Okay. <laughs> well, it was great talking to you today, John. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, well, thank you. This really is important. Please pay attention to it. And uh, a Democratic Congress can slow these people down. Like, find out the facts and start harassing your members of Congress. Like, it, it's not futile. I encourage everybody to try that. Yeah, you're here on that. If you enjoyed what you heard on this podcast today, and you enjoyed previous episodes of Media Roots Radio, please consider supporting us through patreon.com slash media roots radio you can donate as little as one dollar per episode and if you decide to donate more depending on how much um, you get access to special content like a free copy of my film a very heavy agenda thanks for listening Mm -hmm.